Welcome. Thank you all for coming out tonight for the premiere screening of the new documentary, The Rise of Trump, Why a Reality Show President Was Inevitable. <laughs> Keen observers among you will have noticed uh, a lead-inning title change. Uh, the working title for this project and the one that was originally on the invite was The Rise of the Superhero President, Why Trump Was Destiny. And one reason for that change was that, surprisingly enough, not everyone on social media <laughs> finds the concept of a superhero president uh, absurd and terrifying. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing that can get you retweeted by green frog avatars uh, with the hashtag MAGA. Uh, Rob Montz, uh, who's here with us tonight, is the director of uh, the documentary. He's an independent documentarian whose work has attracted millions of views and coverage in major media outlets such as The Economist, USA Today, The New York Times, The Washington Post, as well as the Adam Carolla podcast. His 2017 documentary, Silence You, Part Two, What Has Yale Become?, published uh, by, by We The Internet TV, won the 2018 Reason Video Prize. Uh, Rob is a graduate of Brown University and more impressive still, an alumnus of the Cato Institute internship program. Now, having watched an advanced screener of what you're about to see, I can tell you that it's unambiguous on the concept of a superhero president. Uh, it, it's bad. Um, <laughs> Rob's film makes the case that the presidency's march toward full-spectrum dominance of American life and law is both ridiculous and menacing. As he puts it in the film, it's a flatly unconstitutional, viciously anti-democratic monstrosity. This is a provocative film. It's going to be controversial. There's at least one line in it that made even me flinch. I emailed him uh, after viewing. I said, uh, it's like you designed it to give Doris Kearns Goodwin a coronary. I meant that in a good way. Um, not that I wish ill on Miss Kearns Goodwin. Um, so buckle up, enjoy the ride, and uh, after a brief period of recovery, uh, we'll start the conversation. It's a real crowd pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, speaking of that, Rob, I, I noticed a, a week or so ago, you, you, in promoting this event, you tweeted out, uh, the event will be a very public test of my theory that pissing people off of every conceivable partisan affiliation is a viable career strategy. <laughs> <laughs> How's that working out? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. What do you say to, uh, uh, you know, there's this phrase, it didn't start in the Trump era, but uh, this phrase, whataboutism, uh, that, uh, you know, a, a, a progressive, uh, anyone left of center might, uh, maybe some never-Trumpers uh, uh, might say that uh, by, you know, putting Trump at the end of a... Uh, host of other presidential abuses? Are you minimizing uh, the uh, 
impact of the Trump presidency or the extent to which uh, Trump is in the, the common phrase, not normal? Yeah, I definitely tried to avoid any sort of cheap contrarian, contrarianism. Although I know you can make a career just doing cheap contrarianism. Um, I guess you can both say that you find him to be grotesque, but at the same time find him to be a natural extension of the way things have been building. And it's not what aboutism to say, um, yes, it's disgusting and highly anti-democratic for Trump to be repeatedly castigating the media as the enemy of the people. But Barack Obama actually initiated eight Espionage Act prosecutions of leakers and journalists. He never, he had plenty of funny, charming speeches to be given at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. But to a certain extent, that served as a smokescreen for what I think was a decidedly anti-press administration. That's not what aboutism, it's just saying like, um, you were kind of duped. And Obama, part, part of it also is that presidential authority works like a one-way ratchet. So if your guy who belongs to your tribe is in office, I'm sure there's ample enthusiasm for him to add new tools to the, the, the superhero toolbox, right? But people seem to forget that that toolbox gets passed along to the next guy. And it's inevitable that the next guy is going to be somewhere down the line, someone of a different political persuasion. Maybe someone that you find to be monstrous and a toxic narcissist with poor impulse control. He gets that toolbox too, right? And particularly on the issue of media crackdowns, the Obama administration was highly innovative in its use of certain legalistic mechanisms that I don't totally understand in order to snuff out journalists and snuff out leaks. That whole apparatus gets passed along to the Trump administration. I think we're lucky because he doesn't know it exists, <laughs> right? Um, or, frankly, he's not particularly interested in using it. There's kind of a weird, um, a weird kicker to the kicker for this that I didn't quite know how to incorporate into the doc, which is the following. I don't know if it ruins my thesis, but I, I think it's interesting, which is on any formal metrics of use of executive authority at this point in his administration, Trump is actually the least active president since before the New Deal. So he doesn't actually use the formal powers as much as you'd think. He just holds a press conference every time he decides to ban Muslims from traveling into our country or whatever, right? And the thing that he likes doing is the performative aspects of the presidency. He likes mass rallies. He likes things that can satiate his bottomless ego. He doesn't actually seem to be that interested in using the formal powers of the office to advance any particular public policy agenda. Um, and in that way, we've kind of, that is postmodern. I'm going to use that word even though I'm not quite sure what it means, in the sense that he's, it's the next step to a purely performative presidency, where apparently all the voting public needs anymore, or at least the people that are the diehard Trump supporters need anymore, is for him just to occasionally own the libs and have a viral tweet, and, uh, and, that's, and that, that, that perfectly satiates their need from the president. They're not actually looking for any hardcore policy. I mean, he just like renegotiated NAFTA, and it's basically, he retains almost 99% of the framework for the deal. He just rebrands it and has a long press conference about it. That's purely performative, right? And 
but I just didn't, I didn't know how to incorporate it into the doc. Not sure if that answered your question. Well, there is a, there's definitely a sense of the Obama, you know, was heard uh, late in his administration to uh, worry to uh, close advisors apparently about, quote, leaving a loaded weapon lying around for the next president to use. Um, and in a lot of ways, he did that. Uh, you know, Obama was the uh, uh, first two-term president in American history to have been at war every day of his presidency. He expanded uh, war powers to uh, actually to a, uh, a degree that George W. Bush uh, had not approached. Um, you know, he, he blew through the war powers resolution uh, with the new theory that if you're bombing someone and they can't hit you back, in, this is in Libya. It's not really hostilities. Um, right. But it is interesting that uh, you have the sort of annual spring bombing of uh, Syria under Trump, and you have a, a ramping up to a certain degree of uh, the backdrop of airstrikes that, that have been going on throughout the uh, Obama administration. Other than that, uh, you he does seem to have this unique ability to command the, the news cycle without necessarily having to blow something up. Right. And I would say, this is probably where maybe Gene and I differ. I don't think Obama is a bad person. I think he's probably a decent human. I actually think George W. Bush is frankly a decent human. Um, Bill Clinton is a psychopath and Trump is a psychopath. But you don't have to be a bad person in order to further expand the presidency. There's just massive institutional momentum behind it. And it almost always makes political sense for you to go along with that institutional momentum. And because Congress is uh, comically dysfunctional, and nowadays the average congressperson doesn't think it's their job to do the messy work of actually crafting legislation. Their job is just to get on Fox News and MSNBC. If you start annexing authority that was originally intended for them, they'll basically let you get away with it. Or if they do pass legislation, they purposely make it extremely vague and leave the interpretation up to administrative and regulatory agencies so that they don't have to bear any political consequences if their legislation doesn't do what they said that it was going to do, right? And oftentimes those regulatory bodies are, are in service of the president. They can be directed with executive orders. So a lot of it is because of institutional cowardice in Congress, where it's the, the, whole, the, the, the genius of the American system is that these different branches would selfishly compete for power. But what happens when one of the branches no longer competes for power anymore? It's willing just to give stuff up whenever the Supreme Court or the president decides to take it. And that starts most tragically with the war power under Truman, and then it extends through a bunch of other things as well. They, they just refuse to push back. They refuse to take the political heat for that. Yeah, I don't know if I... I don't know that I've ever said Obama is a bad person or that I probably did say that Bush was a bad person. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure, but I think, you know, both, both men seem like, uh, uh, you know, good husbands, good fathers. Uh, they, are, they showed themselves capable of acting like, you know, presenting themselves as grown-ups in a grown-up job. I don't think either of them were sociopaths, but... Uh, the two of them did expand, uh, did carry out some terrible actions and expand the powers of the office in ways that had not been expanded before and uh, ended up turning over the keys to, to Donald Trump. Uh, right. Who in many ways, I've, I've, 
I start to think of is the, uh, he's like the picture of Dorian Gray of the, of the presidency. You know, uh, if, if Kennedy was Dorian Gray, you know, the permanent youth, uh, the charming guy, Trump's kind of like the, the, the rotting uh, portrait <laughs> that just got up and walked out. Yeah, he's uh, just kind of like the unvarnished id of American politics. There's no more pretense anymore. There's no more ornamentation. He's like, this is what you guys wanted. This is what you get, right? And I think another thing that is feeding into the dysfunction of American politics is even if you despise Trump, the standard issue solution to the Trump problem is just to get the right superhero in that office, Right? It's not to question the powers that have been accruing to that office. It's that we just need to get our alpha male in there or alpha female, right? And that's just the same superhero logic but inverted. Like if if your politics are dominated by Trump because you hate him, that's still the cult of the presidency at work as much as the MAGA hat wearing people that thought that superhero president wasn't negative, wasn't a negative description, right? What's funny is that... uh in many ways, we are much more cynical about politics and at least, depending on the election cycle, less susceptible to a cult of the presidency and to a cult of government. Uh, you know, in, during the, uh, you know, up until I think roughly 1966, uh, the, uh, the survey that's been conducted uh, for decades now, dating back to the Eisenhower administration, how much of the time do you trust uh, the federal government in Washington to do what is right? And the way this is usually uh, tabulated is uh, they combine the answers most of the time, most of the time, just about always. Uh, Those, that number was, uh, you know, up around 75% during the new frontier in the Kennedy administration. Uh, And after Vietnam, after Watergate, it uh, plummeted and never really reached those heights again until uh, for a brief blip after September 11th. Uh, you know, a movie like uh, Gabriel Over the White House uh, would be laughed out of theaters now right. uh, because people don't uh, think of the presidency. In, most of the time, they don't think of the presidency in these terms. But partisanship will, uh, uh, you know, the people that uh, fell for the cult of Obama are a different group than the people that fell for the cult of of Trump. Uh, So there is more distrust and there is more cynicism. There's a a, uh, a point in the the, uh, Watergate tapes where uh, Haldeman and Nixon are talking about whether to suppress the Pentagon Papers. And uh, Haldeman says to Nixon that, you know, well, we, you know, if we don't do something about this and people see how the Vietnam War started, uh, you know, they will, the, the country will be very hurt by this because, and this is pretty much a direct quote, the implicit infallibility of presidents, which is an accepted thing in America, uh, will be badly hurt by this. People will see that the president can do wrong. You know, after Vietnam and Watergate, we don't, no one could really say that with the implicit infallibility of presidents with a straight face. Uh, however, driven by partisanship, uh, groups of Americans fall for that uh, 
you know, depending on who's president. So Yeah, absolutely. Also, The West Wing wasn't that long ago, the ah. TV show, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and it was an extremely popular primetime piece of entertainment. So I don't think it's, it's it totally It was like dead. Clinton without the id. It was like right. a, a cleaned-up version. Uh, uh, it was unbearably noble, uh, uh, selfless uh, executive branch staffers. The... Um, uh, and I'm, now this is going to be weird saying this because I'm just stealing a point that you made in your book. But um, after the Nixon administration, there was a contraction of power in the presidency. Congress actually did assert itself. But it's particularly when it comes to the War Powers Act, that stuff does begin to loosen. And it really breaks under the Clinton administration under his bombing campaign of Bosnia, which is an explicit number of days he's allowed to have troops out there without congressional authorization. And he just like busts it without any political consequence, as far as I can tell. So a lot of that stuff does end up getting broken over the course of time, and it corrodes. So what gave you the idea to, uh, to put this together, and why now? It definitely feels, I, I got the sense that, I think that people understand the thesis like subconsciously. I think people get that there's something about the office itself that's one of the essential drivers of dysfunction in our politics. But no one ever articulates the office itself being the problem. The, what I refer to lovingly in the doc is the pundit industrial complex. You basically never hear any criticisms of the office itself. You hear ample criticisms of Trump, but there's never any like meta-awareness of should this office be this important? Is it, should we be expecting the president to be the moral leader of the country? Should he be obligated to go to any disaster zone and and hand out bottles of water. Like, is this, a re is this healthy politics here? It just never comes up. So I think it, it's like recognizing that the office itself, sort of its power, its prestige, and its prominence is, the, is, is, the, is one of the, the core drivers. I think people getting that at some subconscious level but not having yet seen something that articulates it, that's, that's kind of what drove me to it. Um, and also, just... Superhero presidential politics is not democracy. It's not. Waiting every four years for the right grayback alpha to deliver you to whatever transcendent utopia your politics are directing you towards is not democracy. Democracy is the, the, the radical idea that all of us together collectively engage in politics and through compromise figure out what the laws are going to be that that run, that run our, our, our society. There's an incredible quote in Cy Hirsch's book about JFK from uh, a quote from the woman that JFK slept with before his inaugural address. And she tells Cy Hirsch that it, that it basically says it's very dangerous to think, to, to, to fetishize this idea of the young, beautiful icon who's taken over the presidency because it breeds a passivity in the way you think about politics. Because it's his job, right? He's got that beautiful jawline. He's got those funny little quips that someone else wrote for him. He'll do the hard work for us. And now I'm like, no, no, no. No, no, no. Like, democracy is doing the dirty work of researching who's running in the primaries for your city council election. It's like, not fun, not entertaining. You're bound to be disappointed. But like, that's what democracy is. It's not finding the right superhero to do the dirty work for you. That passivity is dangerous, and I think it gets preyed upon. Frankly, I think Trump could have done a much better job of preying upon it if he'd been conducting himself a little bit differently in the office. But 
His toxic narcissism, while it was useful on the campaign, I do think is ultimately proven to be a handicap for him to be able to do stuff like that. But that's what it is. It's not democracy. It's not. It's soft monarchy. And so that's a kind of reframing that I want to get out there into the universe. I think it's even worse than, uh, you know, the, uh, the pundit industrial complex doesn't push back against this idea. Um, in some ways, it uh, enables it. If you remember... Right. Uh, There's a lot of money to be made in enabling it. Uh, I, is there? I think so. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I was thinking about uh, the first uh, uh, bombing raid on uh, Syria in April uh, 2017. Uh, Fareed Zakaria on CNN announces that this is the first, this is the moment when Donald Trump became president because he's launching unauthorized <laughs> airstrikes uh, based on a legal theory uh, that, that Obama's Office of Legal Counsel had written up uh, for Libya. Uh, but it, it's not just that, uh, you know, there's a, a myopia about uh, the, the amount of power that's accrued in this office. There's sometimes a reward to be had in terms of accolades from intellectuals when you act unilaterally. And you see that uh, a lot in uh, the presidential rankings, that, uh, that, you know, this, the scorecards that come out every few years from uh, presidential historians and political scientists that routinely, uh, you know, some of the the bad guys in 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 the movie, uh, you know, uh, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, I forget if Woodrow Wilson yeah. makes an appearance there. Uh, these are routinely top ten uh, presidents, and uh, then you have uh, harmless fellows who favored normalcy, like uh, Warren Harding, down there at the bottom of the ranking. I told Gene at least five minutes of the Q&A has to be him monologuing about the glories of Warren G. <laughs> I don't know if I have five minutes. That, on, Coolidge on and Carter. G. That's the new hotness. That's the new trifecta. <laughs> That's Mount Rushmore right there. Yeah, Can we talk a about funny, funny Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I know. But uh, for Carter, for example, I, I assume that you're... I, I think you're allowed to say nice things about him in the Cato Auditorium. But on a lot of, I learned this from the book that came out from the Cato Institute published in 1989, which was an assessment of the Reagan years, that on key metrics of rate of deregulation and also slowing the growth of the federal government, Carter had a, has a significantly better record than Ronald Reagan does. Ronald Reagan, he has a couple big flashy tax cuts, but a lot of it was purely rhetorical. Jimmy Carter actually executes that. He makes it, uh, adds all sorts of competition to the airlines and things like that. But Carter, I think it's fair to say, not, doesn't demonstrate an excess of personal charisma and wasn't particularly savvy about kind of feeding into the superhero iconography and was condemned to uh, re-election defeat. This is kind of like a too cute, like Malcolm Gladwell point, but like that him, that he and H.W. and Ford are the only three presidents that are condemned to re-election defeat. And they also are the people that are the least swaggerless to occupy that office over the course of modern history. Doesn't strike me as a coincidence. 
I'm not sure that point is true, but I think it's like clever enough that I wanted to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, superheroes don't wear cardigan sweaters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except in their secret identities, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Carter, uh, the, someone uh, uh, called him the great deregulator. Uh, he is, he uh, instituted a lot of the deregulation that Reagan sort of, uh, through osmosis, gets credit for. Uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, airline deregulation in particular, uh, the reason we're able to uh, complain about our tiny seats and fly across, uh, you know, share, sit next to people in velour sweatpants and uh, fly across country at an affordable price is, be, is because he appointed Alfred Kahn to the head of the Civil Aeronautics Board and signed uh, into law uh, air, airline deregulation. Uh, he, uh, I think he was, his, one of his problems was he was not good at faking competence. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he looked like he, he, he was overwhelmed. A little flustered, by the job. yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, why don't we open it up for questions? But let me, uh, let me begin this with my, uh, my caution that, uh, we run questions as uh, by unitary executive theory <laughs> here, and I'm in charge. Um, I'd ask you to uh, uh, to make sure that they're actually questions. You know, to raise your hand, wait for the the mic to show up, uh, state your affiliation if you think that that matters, uh, and make sure that what you have to say ends fairly soon, <laughs> with a question mark. Uh, don't be that Washington personality who, who hogs a microphone and makes a speech. We will have your mic taken from you, <laughs> leaving you sputtering like Jim Acosta, and we'll probably circulate a misleading video about it. So, we'll ruin um, you. We'll ruin you. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, sir. Yep, wait for the mic. Um, in your film, I didn't see any real mention of Lyndon Johnson, uh, yet uh, he sent far more troops to Vietnam than John Kennedy did or anybody else, and we got more and more in that entanglement uh, without uh, Congress ever passing a resolution of, of war or anything. Is there any particular reason that you sort of skip over Lyndon Johnson? This space, this is 15 minutes long. 15 minutes long already is like testing internet attention spans. I'm competing with 30-second Corgi videos, so that's why it's not fully comprehensive. I read a bunch of LBJ, and frankly, the way that people described him is very Trumpian. Like, during negotiations, sorry, he's like constantly putting his like dick in people's faces, like straight up. Like, people would be sitting down and he'd stand over them and like show them like his virility. It was all this very primal physical domination. He was a tall guy. You can see photos of him with congressmen and some of his staffers and he's constantly like right next to them, standing over them. It's all about physical intimidation. He's this kind of feral creature, this pure product of politics. The, the one thing is that he was savvier than Trump and that he was able to <laughs> shield some of that from the public, right? So you see, it was much more kind of smoothed over and polished, but had a very Trumpian-type personality. Um, yeah, and then it gets complicated. Again, I'm basically just stealing points that Gene made in his book. When the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution does technically authorize the military to be involved in Vietnam. 
it was one on false pretenses and misinformation. And then the way that it was written was, uh, I think it's what he's described as grandma's nightshirt, where it's so expansive that it basically let the president do whatever he wanted. It was not a formal declaration of war as construed in the Constitution. But that's exactly right. Um, uh, uh, it's, uh, I do want to thank you for your short, your good and short question. Uh, yeah, uh, it's in Robert Dalek's uh, biography of, uh, of LBJ, I think, where they recounts a, uh, a scene in the Oval Office with uh, a couple of reporters where they ask him why we're, we're in Vietnam. And according to Dalek, I think according to one of the reporters who was there, LBJ drops his pants and says, this is why. Straight so, up. So <laughs> uh, he's a man at least as crass as uh, Trump, but uh, he didn't have Twitter and probably right. knew the difference <laughs> of, you know, what you do in public and what you do in private. Um, yes, ma'am, in the, towards the back there. Hello, I'm from Liechtenstein, and I wanted to ask if um, in Liechtenstein and Switzerland we have this instrument of popular petition, so we have the possibility to change the constitution. And I wanted to ask if you would go that far to suggest this to the American population. My new, like, super clever solution to this, to this problem is a constitutional amendment creating a fourth branch of government that's basically the American royal family. So <laughs> a purely symbolic people who can be the repository of the hopes and the dreams and the mythology. I'm happy for it to be Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. I realize that's a controversial take. But just uh, uh, people that are attached to government where they have like you know nominal powers, but most of it is about them being a symbolic presence that people can invest these hopes and these dreams in. And I like the way that that drains some of the romance out of being prime minister in the UK. I think it's... I, 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 I'm increasingly... Uh, sympathetic to that way of a functioning government because of how dangerous it becomes when you combine the symbolic role with the executive role. There that, is, that is, that's a cocktail for abuse. There is no cult of Theresa May. There was no cult of David Cameron, Gordon it's not, Brown. It's not the uh, expectation. That's not what their job is. They don't represent England. The queen represents England. They're the head of government, not, right. the, not the head of state. Um... Can you do the uh, one in the far back? Yeah, he's far back in the for a yeah. while. Yeah. Hi. Rob, you talked a few minutes ago about the uh, US political system being more or less broken. So, just as a contrapoint, you know, you look at Trump does something crazy and wants to block Muslims from coming in or. Um, I forget what it was this week where the court said, no, you can't. Right. Um, so the courts come along and say, no, you can't, or we have an election and his party loses. Is it really broken or are we just pissed off because it's ugly? Yeah, I mean, there are uh, the, the original version of the, the ban, the Muslim travel ban did have to be reworked because it was deemed um, unconstitutional by the Third Circuit or something like that. Yeah, obviously there are checks. It's not actually a monarchy. I just think... The, the reason for the more slightly hysterical language is the g gap between what this office was originally conceived to be and what it actually is is just gigantic. There's just so much power in it that it was never intended to have that I think it's worth 
talking about it like it's a national emergency. We don't actually have a dictator. <laughs> don't actually have an authoritarian overlord yet. And, and keep in mind that the, the checks uh, in national security and foreign yeah, affairs right. are mostly political and prudential. Uh, they're, you know, it is the case that if uh, President Trump wants to, uh, you know, wants a new health care plan, it's, it's got to go through Congress. There's yeah. a lot that can be done through administrative law and executive orders, but uh, the, domestically the presidency is more constrained than in foreign affairs. Uh, if uh, the man falls out of love with uh, Kim Jong-un and uh, it were back to fire and fury, uh, there aren't... Uh, Legal, legal checks to, to uh, say, a bloody nose strike in Korea are parchment barriers. Uh, it's going to depend on the people around him uh, trying to talk him down. Mm, any preference? Uh, let's try over here. Um, it's always sort of stuck with me um, from Gary Wills's book, um, Bomb Power, the concept of the atomic bomb essentially um, changing or exacerbating this cult of the presidency. Uh, have, you, have you read Gary's book? And, and if you have, um, or if you're familiar with the concept, what, what does he get right or wrong about this? Yeah, I haven't read the book. I mean, I know a little bit about the nuclear football that gets carried around with Trump all the time. That's terrifying. That's the, that's the full extent of my take on it. I don't know much more about it than that. I've read a review of the book by Jack Goldsmith, so I mean, I'm familiar with the thesis. I don't know if that changes everything. Uh, I mean, it's certainly, it, like, the prospect of a hanging, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. Um, <laughs> The, uh, but, you know, non-nuclear conflicts uh, can be pretty serious, uh, Truman in Korea. Um, so it, it's definitely one, uh, it, almost by definition, the thing we're most, we should be most concerned about. Uh, it's where unrestrained power is uh, most dangerous and, and potentially most destructive, but I don't know if it's the, the but-for cause of the uh, growth in power in this office. Can I do uh, one over there? Sure. Okay. Hi, um, thank you for the film. I just wanted to touch on the term you used early on when you referred to the kind of the expansion of powers as a ratchet wrench, I think it was. And my question was, do you think there are any short-term or smaller-scale solutions um, to slow that wrench, as it were? And if they are, are they more legislative political or are they more an attitude shift in, in the political bodies that have the chance to do that? Gene's probably, I don't know. My, like, not audience-satisfying question is I'm extraordinarily pessimistic about any of this stuff changing. <laughs> I don't see any public appetite for it. I think Trump, in, in part, like, this is a, a friend of mine um, who thought that kind of the Trump phenomenon of exposing the raw id 
would break the spell of the presidency, that people would finally have to confront what does this look like without any of the comforting ornamentation. I don't think that's happened. I think all it's done is ramp up people's attachment to the office. They're just still operating under the superhero logic that it's about getting the right person in there. We'll solve this if Elizabeth Warren is our superhero champion, right? It's not, well, maybe we shouldn't have a champion in the first place. So that's my, I think that's my pessimistic take. Uh, the last chapter of my book, 10 years, it's 10 years old now, uh, The uh, Cult of the Presidency, you know, you're supposed to wrap everything up in the last chapter. Yeah. I've laid out this problem, and now here is my bullet point solution to, to how, you, how you undo this problem. And uh, it's a chapter everyone hated because... Uh, <laughs> Your heart wasn't in it. <laughs> uh, well, I admit that, uh, you know, so you can... Are there ways you could strengthen the war powers resolution? Sure. Uh, are there legislative, you know, I, I could think of a legislative program uh, that if enacted would uh, go some distance toward, uh, you know, restraining presidential authority in trade and war powers. Uh, there are things that could be done. Uh, they all uh, depend on a Congress uh, with the political ambition they depend on individual congressmen with the political will and ambition to do it, which in turn depends on a uh, electorate uh, and protect perhaps an intellectual leadership that thinks these things are should be a priority. Uh, and I don't see so. It's important to think about uh, you know. Congress uh, making more aggressive use of the power of the purse to defund wars, uh, tying funding directly to the War Powers Resolution, requiring, uh, as Senator Corker proposed uh, not too long ago, requiring uh, a congressional vote when the president invokes national security to start a trade war. Uh, all of these things would be good. Uh, but to get from here to there, uh, you need... Uh, a Congress with the political will to do them and a, a, a populace that, that uh, voting public that uh, wants this to happen. Yeah, the only concrete example of any constraints that I know of is I know the Russian sanctions were designed in such a way that it was impossible for Trump to unilaterally revoke them. That was a nice little move, but it's the only one I can think of. I will say that... I do think, uh, as hard as it may sometimes be to uh, uh, appreciate this, uh, in many ways we are in a better uh, position than we were in the late 60s, uh, in the age of the heroic, uh, you know, the, the twilight of the age of the heroic presidency. Uh, I think what happened in the 70s uh, after... Uh, you know, particularly the, the hearings uh, in the Senate, uh, the Church Committee, uh, revealing intelligence abuses by presidents of both parties. I think the uh, increased, you know, people, some people would call it cynicism. I think about it as skepticism toward power. Uh, the fact that there's no going back to 75% of the country trusting the federal government to do what is right most of the time or just about always. Uh, some people decry that declining trust, uh, and in some ways, if it leads you to distrust your neighbor, uh, it can have 
bad effects, but I think it's good that uh, we greet uh, many new proposals for enhanced executive authority with uh, more skepticism than we perhaps would have uh, in the Eisenhower or Kennedy era. I think that's all good, but uh, we haven't gone far enough toward, toward that. We, uh, we have time for one more, I think, and uh, I just want to say uh, appreciate the short, concise, and to-the-point questions, so whoever we call on now, don't ruin it. A lot of pressure. <laughs> I'd like to ask Rob, uh, you, you were early on describing uh, Trump as primarily a performative president. Uh, it, it, the, the perception, at least, is that he's having quite a major impact on regulation and turning back regulation through EPA and the yeah. Interior Department, and also, of course, remaking the uh, judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, but on all levels of the judiciary. That seems to be going into very substantive areas beyond uh, simply performing or making speeches. What, what? That's fair. Yeah, the two-for-one regulation that was initiated through executive order has... Uh, I think I read it's like it's, it's several billion dollars of regulatory relief for private businesses. I do want to give the man his due. I guess um, it's not to say he's not impactful. I guess I just meant that he's, I think he's significantly more interested in the performative aspects of it. Um, a uh, lot of that I feel like it's just, yeah, it's just he's just doing whatever. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, in those areas where there have been some uh, policy successes, He's largely outsourced uh, right. those uh, to other groups or competent appointees. Um, and uh, I, I mean, wonder yeah. how the judiciary is one thing. The uh, regulatory reform, uh, there's no guarantee whatsoever that'll be lasting because, uh, you know, what... Uh, what can be done? What can be done with the pen and the phone can be undone with the pen and the phone. To get real lasting regulatory reform, you would need something uh, like the Reins Act, which uh, uh, requires an up and down, up or down vote on major regulations from Congress. Right. I think. And, oh, sorry, sorry, Gene. Uh, sorry. No. Uh, uh, no. The, um, the 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 fact that there is such a radical shift between the policy promises he makes on the campaign and what he's actually executed, I also think is evidence for the performative aspects of it. I mean, think about how essential his sell to the American people was when it came to economic nationalism. Billion dollar infrastructure projects. All this kind of like Bernie Sanders style economic populism that's promised on the campaign that just disappears the second that he steps into office. Why exactly is that? I think it's because he basically has no public policy commitment. Um, I think it's, it is profoundly impactful. Like, his decision to just outsource the entirety of his judicial appointments to the Federalist Society is probably the most impactful thing that he's done in terms of hard policy, right? I don't think he did that because he, had, <laughs> he has a firm, well-thought-out, originalist interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. He did it because it was good politics, right? Because he knows he can just buy off a big chunk of the Republican base if he ensures them that we're going to appoint now two pro-lifey Supreme Court justices. It's good politics, it's not about. I think that, I think, I do think that people have and continue to, particularly among his leftist critics, underrate 
what is a genuine genius for marketing. I think he made a lot of money as a marketer. Um, most of his real estate empire, from what I can tell, was just inherited from his father, right? But he's very good at marketing. And so even those policy wins, they're driven for the sake of image management. They're not driven because of a deeper principled commitment to small, small government. Yeah. On that note, let's uh, head upstairs for beer, wine, and cheese. Thank you for coming. Thank you.